welcome to the Film Geezers Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Film Geezers Podcast. Uh, I'm Rob Wilmer here as always with Cheeto. Hello. And in this episode we're going to look at films that failed at the box office but became successful later. And when we say failed it's either they lost money or didn't make a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was basically focusing on the, uh, the gross number. So right. yeah. yeah, okay, all right. So I'm gonna start. Um, the first one is Citizen Kane, which, as we all know, is Orson Welles' first and perhaps greatest film, uh, made in 1941. It's often cited as the greatest film of all time. It cost eight hundred thousand um, dollars. It made uh, one point six million dollars, but I think that figure is actually from a re-release as well. Okay, yeah. Um, so the plot summary is that the newspaper baron Charles Foster Kane, one of the richest and most powerful men in America, if not the world, dies. His final dying word is a single word, Rosebud. So a newspaper reporter digs into his past, seeking the meaning of this word. So the film begins with a newsreel detailing Kane's life for the masses, and then from there we're shown flashbacks from Kane's life. As the reporters investigate further, the viewers see a display of a fascinating man's rise to power an eventual fall. So there's a lot of conjecture about why it failed. Um, some say it was to do with um, just the way that it was shot. I mean, uh, Orson Welles introduced a lot of new filming techniques, which were, were shortly adopted afterwards. But a lot of people say the main reason was that Citizen Kane was a composite of real people. And one of them was William Randolph Hearst. He was um, a newspaper owner. And he was so unhappy with the film's fictionalisation of him as a heartless, striving megalomaniac, which actually by most accounts was pretty close to the truth. He actively launched a crusade against the film and banned ads from all Hearst-owned newspapers and put pressure on cinemas not to show it. Um, he actually had a lot of... Um, he had a lot of friends in Hollywood as well. He was friends with uh, Sam Goldwyn from MGM and other people like that. So he had, he had rich, sort of rich and powerful friends as well. Mm -hmm. So he could do that. Um, so when when did it become popular? Well, in the mid fifties, two things happened. Uh, one, TV. Yeah. So it became a fixture on late night TV, and the second, it was it was really down to European critics. Um, they were spearheading the rise of art house cinema, and this was kind of seen as an art house movie, and so they proclaimed Kane as the best film ever made. So that spread through Europe, finally getting back to the US, and it, I think it caused a lot of people then to reevaluate the film, um, and it's it's now pretty much on every top of every list of greatest films ever made, yeah. um, and unfortunately. Wells was never really able to recapture that. Um, although he strived for the rest of his life, he was he wasn't just wasn't able to top the popularity of Citizen Kane. Right. Um, uh, my first film was another film that's widely regarded as one of the best of all time, and it's a Shawshank Redemption. And uh, it's a nineteen ninety four drama film, and it's based on the nineteen eighty two Stephen King novella Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. It's written and directed by Frank Darabont, and it stars Tim Robbins, Morgan Freeman, and Bob Gunton. It tells the story of banker Andy Dufresne, played by Tim Robbins, 
who was sentenced to life in Shawshank State Penitentiary for the murders of his wife and her lover, despite his claims of innocence. Over the following two decades, he befriends a fellow prisoner, contraband smuggler Ellis Red Redding, played by Morgan Freeman, and becomes instrumental in a money laundering op- operation led by the prison warden Sammy Norton, played by Bob Gunton. And um, the Shawshank Redemption was made on a budget of $25 million. It made $58.3 million for a total gross of $33.3 million, which is laughable, really. Um, you think of a film that's quite literally one of the best ever made, would have made so much more than that. Um, there's many different reasons why it flopped. Uh, first off, it came out in 1994, and 1994 just happened to be one of the best years for movies ever. These are just some of the movies that came out in 1994. You've got Pulp Fiction, you've got Lay on the Professional, Speed, The Usual Suspects, Forrest Gump, The Lion King. I mean, it has the most fiercest of competition. Yeah, I mean, Pulp Fiction won the Palme d'Or, didn't it? Yeah. So that kind of overshadowed everything that year. Mm. That it's was just... kind of the movie of the year, wasn't it? I don't know what what they um, were doing in 1994. Just having there were so many good films, and there's even those are just a couple of the films. You know, there's so many different good films. I mean, um, another film, uh, The Mask, came out as well, which was a huge box office hit, and yeah, it just had the fiercest of competition. Uh, in 1994, most of the films were like. Uh, comedic action thrillers and nobody really wanted to see a dark depressing drama set in a prison along with this they wanted to see the huge big blockbusters with the likes of Bruce Willis Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger what I was what I'm trying to get at is it just wasn't appealing for film audiences at the time the Shawshank Redemption basically alienated half of its target audience females it was a sole male film and women were just not interested lastly the title wasn't appealing either Stephen King didn't want his name associated with the film, so not even fans of him would go and see it, despite the title. But like I said before, all of this doesn't matter. It's ranked as the best film of all time on IMDb, with a score of 9.3, along with many people citing it as the best film of all time. And it was through... Um, it's a, a, lot of, a lot of the time with movies that fell in the 90s, they start getting some tra- traction when the home video is released, and that's what happened, because... Uh, it was only about 300, it was a laughable sum of people ordered the, the, the video. It was about 330,000, I believe. And when it started coming out on, on DVD as well, more people and word got round. And that's how it basically became popular. But now now today, I mean, it's, it's everyone knows a short shank and everyone knows how good it is. But it's just mental to think that, that yeah. these, uh, these movies can just be considered box office bombs yeah. but they are literally considered some of the greatest of all time because also as well um, Shawshank was produced by Castle Rock Entertainment wasn't it which yeah. was um, I think Rob Reiner's film yeah, yeah. company and that was actually bought out by Ted Turner wasn't it yeah. because he wanted a catalogue of films to show on his TNT his new Turner Network television and so Shawshank was one of those films that was kind of shown ad nauseum like you know on TNT, yeah. so that, that pushed obviously the popularity of it as well. But yeah, it's it's, it's amazing that film um, is good. But the thing is, I mean, a film a film can be great, but if people don't go and see it, then it's just not gonna yeah. it's just not gonna gain any traction and, and be popular. Um, but yeah, it's just mental the, yeah. the list of films. But all right, all right. So uh, my next film is the thing. Now we've we've talked about the thing. Uh, on a few of, the, of our podcasts. 
But the thing is, John Carpenter's 1982 horror film, it cost $15 million to make, and it made $19.6 million at the box office, which, you know, you would say was maybe financially successful, but it just didn't maybe achieve its potential. So how much did it cost to make? $15 million. So uh, what, what, did only, what did it make? 19.6. So that's, that's only $4 million yeah. that, that the studio actually made, so, yeah. yeah. So the plot summary, which we all know the plot. In remote Antarctic, a group of American research scientists are disturbed at their base camp by a helicopter shooting at a sled dog. When they take in the dog, it brutally attacks both human beings and canines in the camp, and they discover that the beast is an alien and can assume the shape of its victims, taking them over at molecular level. A resourceful helicopter pilot, Kurt Russell, leads the camp crew in desperate, gory battle against a vicious creature before it picks them all off one by one. So there's been lots of reasons why it failed. I think it wasn't just one, it was a cumulative uh, number of reasons. Mm. Um, by sort of early 80s, the appeal of horror films declined by 70% over the period uh, previous six months. Um the end in the film um in the end of the film there's just two of them left uh they're, they're basically the camp's being destroyed um they're freezing to death in the snow and it's it's left as kind of ambiguous uh, ending um actually at a one market research screening carpenter queried the audience on their thoughts about the ending and one audience member asked well what happened in the very end which one was the thing and when Carpenter responded that it was up to their imagination, the audience member responded, oh, God, I hate that. That's so annoying, isn't it? It is, because I think people just like like things to be wrapped mm. up in a nice little bow. Small-minded people, isn't mm. it? But no, it's not what the thing is. Um, also, again, it, it was kind of lost in in, um, in the other films that were released that year. Yeah. Like, like a, lot of, a lot of these films, it was actually opened on exactly the same day as Blade Runner. Then E.T. ET also came out in 81, was it? Well, it was in the same 10-week period as Poltergeist, Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, Tron, Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan, Conan the Barbarian, and E.T. Oh, wow. Um, And although there was like an appetite for science fiction movies, it just wasn't the kind that came with unhappy endings. Yeah. And endings that were ambiguous and you had to kind of fill in the dots yourself. Um. So how did it become? Well, simple answer is home video. Yeah. Um, the same people who didn't go to watch the film in cinemas, you know, rented it on home video. And that allowed them to watch it and re-watch it and then, you know, pick it apart, evaluate it. A lot of them went on to be um, directors, of, you know, or involved in the film industry um, themselves. And so they could actually... Um, so they would have sort of influence on the popularity of, of the film later on. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, it's it's the the ending for me personally makes it a much more memorable film yeah. and it makes it much more um it's almost ahead of its time where it doesn't give you a full um what do you call it? Satisfying ending. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um I mean the critic it was hated by the... I mean, one critic described it as the worst film ever made. Yeah. But then even the critics have had to reevaluate it and they've changed their mind on it as well. And it's now widely considered as one of the best uh, science fiction horror films ever made. Yeah. So sometimes I think it's just... It's just, you know, when the time that it's released can have a big 
uh, impact on on these type of films? Like I said, there's it, quite a few things. Maybe like audiences just weren't ready. Like 1982 audiences weren't ready for a yeah. film like that. Um, or were just too many science too fiction many science films. Too many science fiction films. At the yeah. Time. Yeah. Be a number of things, but yeah. I'm glad now people do consider it one of the the best of its kind. So, right. Um, Monk's film was Requiem for a Dream, and um, it's a 2000 psychological drama film, and it's based on the 1978 Hubert Selby Jr. novel of the same name. It is written and directed by Darren Aronofsky, and it stars Ellen Burstyn, Jared Leto, Jennifer Connelly, and Marlon Wayans. The, the film depicts four characters affected by drug addiction and how it alters their physical and emotional states. Their addictions cause them to become imprisoned in a world of delusion and desperation. As the film progresses, each character deteriorates and their reality is overtaken by, the, by delusion, resulting in catastrophe. And now, Requiem for a Dream was made on a budget of $4.5 million, which is nothing, really. Um, and it made only $7.4 million for a total gross of $2.9 million. There's only one real big reason why this film made so little money. It's because the MPAA certified the film in NC-17, and this means that no person under 17 could watch this film. And in response to this, and to appease said MPAA, Aronofsky released his own cut of the film, and in doing so, he severely limited how many theatres would even carry the film. And I don't know why they didn't want to show Aronofsky's cut, because this is one of the big reasons why the film barely grossed any money. I almost think that um, maybe because he wasn't that, that big of a director, him show, in making his own cut, it, maybe cinemas didn't think that it was going to be like a professional movie and they didn't want to show it. Um, I really don't know why this caused the theatres to not pick up the movie, and maybe because they heard about the MPAA stepping in. Um but that's really the only reason why. And Reckon for a Dream is ranked as the 95th best film of all time on IMDb with a score of 8.3. And it's widely regarded as one of the best films of the 2000s. So there's only one reason. There's like The film's amazing. There's only one... That was the only real one reason why it never goes to money because the theatres just wouldn't show it for some reason. And like I said, it's... it's I think it's due to the MPAA stepping in and... and uh, of course, when the MPAA has to step in, it brings bad press, and I don't think cinemas wanted to show it because they didn't think they were going to get the the ticket sales from it. Yeah. But I would have shown it because, like we said, bad press is, yeah. is still yeah. good, isn't it? You know, because obviously back then they didn't have the PG thirteen to do no. it, did they? As well, and that's what happened to the thing. The thing was rated seventeen, so it meant nobody under the age of seventeen could see it without uh, a parent with them. Mm. And they reckon that could have damaged the film because that was maybe their core audience was the kind of 15 to 17-year-olds, yeah. those late teens, mm. you know. Um, then obviously they brought in, because E.T. was PG, um, and then obviously they later brought in PG-13, which which would then open up a lot of films to a wider audience. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, I can understand that. But yeah, like I said, it's... it's it's, it's an amazing film and it's easily one of the best two films of the 2000s. It's just, Not one I've seen, but I'm going to have to... Uh, yeah, definitely. Reckon for a Dream is definitely yeah. a, a brilliant film, but yeah. Okay. All right, my next one is uh, Tremors. Um, Tremors is a 1990 American Western-themed monster horror comedy film. That sounds amazing. Directed by <laughs> Ron Underwood. 
Um, it cost 10 million. It made modestly successful at 16.7 million, mm. which isn't too bad. I mean, it would actually be considered a financial success, but it could have made so much more. Yeah. And is that what they were planning? They were, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the plot summary is repairman and kind of losers, Val, <laughs> Val McKee, Kevin Bacon. I mean, these are the ultimate kind of yeah, anti-heroes, are. aren't they, really? And El Bassett, played by Fred Ward. They're tired of their dull lives in the small desert town of perfection in Nevada. Uh, just as they're trying to skip town, they happen upon a series of mysterious deaths and a concerned seismologist, played by Finn Carter, studying unnatural readings below the ground. And then a series of accidents mean that the road, the only road in and out of perfection is cut off, so they're trapped. Um, they've got mountains all around them. Um, and they discover that these deaths were caused by these giant underground worm-like monsters. Um, and they start to attack the town, and they, they realise the only way that they can survive is if they can make it into the mountains. Um, so, with the help of the eccentric couple, Reba, McIntyre, Michael Gross, they're a couple of survivalists. Um, they fight for survival against these monsters. Um, and again, the reason why it fell was, was similar to, to what you were saying. It was set for a November 1989 release. However, the MPAA gave it an R rating, owing to the language. So the creators decided at the last minute to make the film more commercially available. So... Over 20 uses of the F word were either cut or redubbed with softer words. Examples include, can you fly you sucker? And we <laughs> killed the mother humper. <laughs> Among several others. So the, the actual release date was pushed back uh, to allow more time for editing. And the film was eventually released in January 1990 with a PG-13 rating. Um, and... Because of that, the creators blamed the subpar theatrical performance on its marketing campaign, and they felt that once the film had been pushed back, it just wasn't well promoted. And Brent Maddock, who was one of the producers, felt that the theatrical trailer was cringeworthy, and it likely put off cinema goers. Yeah. Um, and Kevin Bacon, in a 2019 interview, he, he, he reckoned that Tremors only made a fifth of what the charts at Universal said it was, so it only made a fifth of what it was projected to make. I mean, had it been... I mean, this, this is another common common theme. Had it been marketed properly, then maybe maybe it would have been bigger. Mm. Um, so how did it become popular? Well, home video again uh, and television. It became one of the most rented films of 1990. Um, and they actually... Unusually for a film that supposedly bombed at the box office, they actually, I think they put out over 300,000 copies of the video. Um, so it, it obviously shows that they had some faith in the film. Yeah. Because, I mean, you look at now, Tremors is... I reviewed Tremors recently. I gave it a five out of five because it is um, probably one of the best modern sort of monster films that's been made. And the reason for that is a lot of monster films, they focus on... Should, purely on the monster, where this actually focuses on, on the actual character development mm, as well. Yeah. And that's what drives that's the film. Point. Um, so, yeah, so it, it is, I think, a really good film, one that I can put on and watch any time. That's um, the best thing about a yeah. film, isn't it, you know? Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it could have it so easily just disappeared. 
and now it keeps and gone away. Uh, but yeah, it's it's on Netflix as well if you yeah. want to watch it. So, yeah. <laughs> no, definitely it's a classic, yeah. and and um, I'd agree with a five point five. So, uh, it what, everything it goes for, it achieves, well, and then it some. It kind of ticks every box. Yeah. You know, it's not your usual run of the mill sort of monster film. Um, like I say. You know, the, yeah, the monsters are obviously a big part of it, but it's more about the characters. There's some comedy in there as yeah, well. Yeah, and it's so refreshing yeah, to have definitely. that, isn't it? But yeah. um, I think at a time when monster films were kind of going out yeah. of fashion. I maybe, think that, it, maybe that contributed to it yeah. as well, you never know. But it, it did kind of reinvigorate the whole, um, the whole genre mm. as well. And I think it created a whole genre of its own. Yeah. The sort of almost a, the, the light-hearted monster film. Yeah. Uh, right. Um, my next film is Warrior, and uh, Warrior is a 2011 sports drama film. It's written and directed by Gavin O'Connor, and it stars Tom Hardy and Joe Edgerton as two estranged brothers, who whose entrance into a mixed martial arts tournament makes them come to terms with their lives and each other. Nick Nolte also stars as the alcoholic father who is trapped in the middle. Now, Warrior is made on a budget of 25 million dollars. It made uh, $23.3 million for a total gross of minus $0.1.7 million. One of, the f- one of the few reasons why Warrior flopped was because of its plot. The plot has been done, and this is not me saying the plot's bad, the film's amazing, but um, the plot has been done a million times and, a, and about two brothers battling it out. Many people just weren't interested in this film. Like I said, it's, it's, the film's amazing, and I don't mean the plot by the plot's bad, I just mean that people's prior perceptions of this film was this is going to be another like brothers battling out like fight film you know Um, also at the time MMA was really starting to become a mainstream sport and there was already a million movies about it Um, another thing was that the trailer made the film look completely awful and it also pretty much gave the whole movie away Uh, another reason was because once again People, like I said, people's prior perception of the film was totally different than the film itself. People went into the cinema expecting a Rocky-style film. Of course, there's a lot of fighting, but it's so much more than that. Warriors a smartly written drama film with conflicts and stakes between our main characters. And perception is such a strong thing because the fact that it's people's prior perceptions is enough to put them off going to see a film. Um, and I was just, I was very shocked that this this is the only film on my list that actually grossed a lot. Uh, it, it lost money. Um, right. I mean, twenty five million for nowadays is is not a lot of money to make a film. But also, I I I think that where it stars Tom Hardy and Joe Edgerton. I mean, Tom Hardy's a huge A lister now, but back then he'd. I think the only film I'd know he'd done, he'd done the Bronson movie, which is well known over here, but I think he'd only done Inception up to that point, so it wasn't the huge A-list he's today, and Joe Edgerton isn't really a, you know, he's he's not, he's he's decently well known, but I think people would know the name more, or they wouldn't associate yeah. the name with him himself. Well, he's Australian, isn't he? Yeah. George? And he'd done a lot of films in Australia, yeah. so... He probably wasn't as well known in the US no. as uh, as he kind of is now, maybe. But yeah, I just I just think people just thought it was an, it was another fight film. Yeah, because they're both Warrior, you know, it's about two brothers MMA. You kind of think it's one of those cliches, like you said, cliche sports film. Mm. 
but it's this it's more than that, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, it's just a tense drama yeah. and it's brutal and it's and it, like Nick Nolte gives in a in a um legendary performance um and yeah, like I said, it's just so much more than a fight film. Uh, the fight film was just a uses the device to get the conflicts in the film, I, I think, and get a bit of action in. But yeah, when well, it was ranked as the 173rd best film of all time on IMDb with a score of 8.1, it is also regarded as one of the best films of the 2010s. And once again, the reason why it became popular was because it was, uh, obviously nowadays we have streaming services, it was put out on the streaming services, people whose perception of the film put them off of it, started to see it and actually see what it was, was you know, and um, also with the whole, uh, I know it's not as, in 2011 maybe a bit more, but DVDs obviously aren't, aren't nowhere near as popular as today, but also on home DVD like Blu-ray, people got it and they realised how good of a film it was. So that's the reason why it's on my list, but definitely... I haven't seen Warrior go see it because it's an, it's an amazing sports drama film, yeah. isn't it? So yeah, okay, cool. Um, my next film is Office Space, um, which is a 1999 comedy film written and directed by Mike Judge. Now he was um, famous for the um, animated uh, shows Beavis and Butthead and King of the Hill, and this was his first live action um, film that he made. It cost ten million. Uh, it made twelve point two million. So the plot summary is that corporate drone Peter Gibbons, playwright Ron Livingston, hates his soul-killing job at a software company called Inertech. Now, his girlfriend persuades him to go and have hypnotherapy. Um, and during the middle of the hypnotherapy, his therapist has a heart attack and dies. <laughs> uh, so he's still left hypnotised in this kind of state of blissful, you know, and trance. Um, so he goes back to work, he refuses to work overtime, he plays games at his desk, he slacks off, um, but it just happens that they've brought in these two um, consultants um, who actually like him, and they uh, put him onto a, a management fast track, because <laughs> <laughs> they're there to basically reevaluate, see where they can cut, cut, um, cut costs. Um, and so they actually decide that Peter's two friends who are both software developers, they decide that they're going to get rid of them and outsource the, the software development uh, to India and put Peter in charge of that. Um, so they decide that they're going to basically rob from the company, uh, taking inspiration from Superman 3. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, I've never seen Superman no. 3. I've seen this, but I've never <laughs> seen Superman 3. So the idea is that every financial transaction either gets rounded up or rounded down. And so what they do is every transaction that's rounded down, they take that fraction of a penny and put it into a, an, a bank account. But they, they mess up and he, he puts the decimal point in the, in the wrong place. So they end up stealing like $300,000 in the first couple of days. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so it's a good film. Mm. It, it's not like... Um, well, Judge said, I mean, Judge said it's not like American Pie. It doesn't have the kind of jokes. Um, like, it, it's very subtle humour. Yeah. Uh, quite intelligent humour as well. Um, and that's, he said, that's probably the reason why why it didn't do so well at the box office. Um, he wasn't happy with the, the trailers for it and the TV ads because, like he said, it's not like American Pie. It doesn't have the kind of jokes you can put in a 15-second television spot. 
of somebody getting hit on the head with a frying pan. It's sly, and let me tell you, sly is hard to sell. Um, again, the marketing wasn't great. The poster just featured the guy covered in posting notes. Um, and although Jennifer Aniston was in the film, they weren't they weren't allowed to use her in the poster because she only had such a small part in the film. But I mean, you can imagine she's in probably one of the biggest sitcoms yeah, ever. Yeah, was Friends, wasn't it? And you'd think that they'd use her name just to market the film. Yes, yeah. because the other guys in it um, were not that well known no. at the time. Um, so that's really why it. it it failed. Um, it became popular. Uh, well, Judge found that although it was disappointing at the box office, it, it hadn't gone unnoticed within the industry. He said uh, Jim Carrey invited to, invited him to his house. Chris Rock left him the best voicemail ever. He had dinner with Madonna. So obviously people within the industry had seen it yeah. and liked it. Um, it took a few years, but then it started just to you know enter popular culture, you know, permeating into the into that. Um, he noticed it when people would start quoting lines to him from the film and actors started to become recognised and you got memes coming out yeah. and everything, yeah. you know. And again, it, it, it found a new home on VHS and DVD um, and it's since become a cult classic, even to the point that TGI Fridays, um, in the film, um, Jennifer Aniston works at TGI Fridays and she's criticised for not wearing like all these pins on her, on her, um, on her uniform. And it actually uh, made TJ Friday, Fridays drop that. <laughs> uh, so that's that's the sort of cultural impact mm. of, of, of the film as well. But it's a funny film. It is, yeah. Um, like I say, it's not like your, your American Pie. It's not like your, um, you know, sort of slapstick kind of raucous comedy. It's more subtle humour. But I would, I would say mm. watch it. Well, well worth a watch. Yeah, 100%. Right, um, my next film is Fight Club, and uh, Fight Club is a 1999 dark dramedy film. It is based on 1996 Chuck, uh, pa- I've got to pronounce this, Palinoic novel of the same name. It's written by Jim Yules and directed by David Fincher, and it stars Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, and Helena Bonham Carter. Edward Norton plays the unnamed narrator who is discontented with his white collar job. He forms a fight club with soap salesman Tyler Durden, played by Brad Pitt and becomes embroiled in a relationship with a destitute woman, Marla Singer, Helena Bonham Carter. And now, Fight Club was made on a budget of $63 million. It made $101.2 million, which you think is, is good, but it only grossed $38.2 million. And once again, it just goes to show that just because a film doesn't make a lot of money, it doesn't mean that it's a bad film, necessarily. One of the main reasons why Fight Club flopped is because it's such a complex film. What was happening was people went to see it, didn't get it and spread around that it was a bad film just because they didn't get it which is a shame really in 1999 word only travelled by mouth paper advertisements and commercials for the average Joe who saw the trailer the trailer showed scenes of brutal fighting and tense action scenes they probably rocked up to the cinema expected to watch a film along the lines of Rocky only to be shown a film which is as complicated as Inception now of course the fighting is a huge part of this film and there's tense action scenes throughout but the film is so much more than that basically people's own perceptions of the film led to it being a flop. Another reason why it flopped was because of the marketing. Studio execs at 20th Century Fox didn't like the film. They heavily restructured David Fincher's intended marketing campaign to try to reduce anticipated losses. So even so, they didn't have backing from their own studio at all. 
Again, that's a common thing as well. Sometimes the studio yeah. has so little faith in a in a film that they, ridiculous, they just it? kind of throw it away. Yeah, they don't spend any money on marketing or anything, and and it, you know. And you think with a film of Fight Club, that if they would have marketed it right and put it all it yeah. went all in, it would have made a boatload of yeah, money. Yeah, you would have thought so. Yeah, but um, once Fight Club came out on DVD, only then did it start to get critical praise. It has since become a cult classic, with it being considered one of the best films of all time. It is ranked as the 11th best film of all time on IMDb with a score of 8.8. And the New York Times dubbed it the defining cult movie of all time. And once again, it. So this is the thing, this is a very common thing where um, you've got general moviegoers and you've got real hard, die hard um, movie lovers of a specific genre. And it how these films tend to become successful is. One, they have to be a good film, obviously, to become successful, but um, general moviegoers just chuck it in the bin. They don't, want, they don't want anything to do with it. And then it has these small contingencies of, of cult followers and obviously word spreads around and that's how the film becomes popular. Yeah. So, like I said, when it was on DVD, loads of people bought it and then only then they started to see how great the film this was. So that's why it's on my list. Yeah, yeah it certainly is good film. Okay, uh, my next film is Highlander, which is a 1986 fantasy action adventure film directed by Russell Mulcahy. Uh, it cost 19 million, and it made 12.9 million at the box office. Um, plot summary: The film opens up with a, a battle um, sword fight between two men at Madison Square Gardens, and it results in one of the men being beheaded. Uh, the survivor is Connor McLeod. Um, and then his history is revealed through a series of flashbacks um, back to the Scottish Highlands in 1536. And it turns out that Connor's immortal. Um, when he's wounded in battle, but does not die, he's banished from his village. Um, he then meets another like himself called, uh, called Ramirez, played by Sean Connery, who's Spanish but was born in Egypt with a Scottish accent. <laughs> <laughs> who teaches him swordsmanship and um, the ways of the immortals. Um, and the idea is that at some point the immortals are going to have to meet um, and fight till one of them is only remaining. Um, it's called The Gathering, and this happens to be in New York City, modern day. Um, and whoever's left the survival will inherit what's called the price. So... The reasons why it's failed, um, kind of odd casting as well, I think was one of them, um, of Christopher Lambert. Now, Russell McKay is flicking through a magazine and he saw a picture of Lambert as Tarzan in Greystoke and said, that's the guy. And so they cast him. And when he was already signed up, they had a meeting. He hadn't met him before he'd actually cast him. <laughs> and he realised he couldn't speak English. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, he couldn't even say, hello, my name's uh, Christopher. Yeah. Um, so he had to work with a, a language coach uh, for six weeks, four hours a day, as well as uh, he spent four hours a day with a fencing coach, a guy called Bob Anderson, who was actually a fencing coach on Star Wars. Mm. And he doubled for Darth Vader in some of the... Um, the fight scenes because Dave Prowse kept breaking lightsabers. Yeah, that's a little <laughs> digression mm. there. Um, Mulcahy, um, he was basically signed on to do this film from from the back of a film he made, uh, a low budget horror film called Razorback, uh, 
about a um, a killer pig. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's, he actually had a background in music videos. So it's kind of filmed because of the low budget. It's filmed sort of guerrilla style in an unorthodox, quick-cutting M- MTV style with some really mad transitions. There's a transition from uh, where it, it's on a fish tank and then it, it transitions to underwater. Uh, and I think the cinematographer didn't get, didn't get on with him, didn't mm. didn't want to film it that way. Um, and the the film is kind of an uneven tone. It lurches between sort of being deadly serious to sort of being very camp as well. Mm. So I don't think it, it knows what it want, what sort of where it where it should be pitched. Yeah. Um, and because of the the low budget, you've got some really ropey special effects especially in the last scene where you can obviously see the wires that are just <laughs> suspending him. And like like you said with um, Fight Club, Fox basically threw it away, mm. you know. They thought that the back and forth between Tiff, because a lot of it is done in flashback to throughout, you know, his life, and they felt that this was a bit confusing, so they cut some of that out, which even made the film even more confusing. And they didn't even—they didn't really support it with any serious promotion. The actual USA release is eight minutes shorter than you, you, the European release because of the cuts they made to it. Um, the American poster featured just a grainy black and white headshot of Lambert, and that was it. There was no indication of what the film was about or you know the content. So they really just couldn't be bothered to market it properly. Um, and the reason it became popular really was um, Christopher Lambert. He actually won the Caesar Award, which is a French film award, for his performance in a French film called Subway. It was the second highest grossing film of the year in France. So it, it gained a following in, first in France, then kind of spread throughout Europe, and its its reputation began to grow. And then obviously, with the advent of home video as well, uh, it really found, found a home. Um, it spawned... I think four sequels, maybe five sequels. I did not know that. Which all bombed at the box office. <laughs> and a TV series as well, which I think ran for about three series. But they are, um, as I was sort of researching this, they are looking to reboot it. Oh, wow. Highlander. So, I'm quite interested in that. Yeah, yeah, so we'll have to see how that goes. But yeah, I mean, as well, it's got such a kick-ass... Um, Soundtrack by Queen. Um, yeah. they, they were initially signed on just to do us one, one, um, one s- song for it, but they insisted then on on doing the whole soundtrack, and that formed the pretty much the basis for the album, a kind of magic. But it is, I mean, you just for the soundtrack alone, yeah. you should go and watch it really. Um, and the stand, I think the standout performance is there's the Kurgan as well. I mean, that's that's really really good performance. So, definitely, definitely one of my favourites now. Yeah, I know you. You do go on about it, and I, st- I still need to watch it. So, but I'll definitely get around to watching it. Right. Um, my next one is The Big Lebowski, and The Big Lebowski is a 1998 crime comedy film. It's written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, aka the Cohen Brothers, and it stars Jeff Bridges as Jeffrey the Dude Lebowski, a Los Angeles slacker and avid bowler. He's assaulted as a result of mistaken identity. He then learns that a millionaire also named Jeffrey Lebowski was the intended victim. The millionaire Lebowski's trophy wife is kidnapped 
and he commissions the dude to deliver the ransom to secure her release. The plan goes awry when the dude's friend, Walter Schobach, played by John Goodman, schemes to keep the ransom money. Sam Elliott, Julianne Moore, Steve Buscemi, Buscemi and Philip Seymour Hoffman also star supporting roles. Now, The Big Lebowski was made in a budget of $15 million. It made $46.7 million for a total gross of $31.7 million. The only, reason real, the only real reason this film flopped was, like Fight Club, people didn't get it. People rocked up to the cinema in 1998 expecting to see a cheap slapstick comedy film. This is because at the time, this is what comedy films were. For example, the most famous comedy films at the time starred actors like Jim Carrey and Adam Sandler, whose films literally followed with the same formula. The Big Lebowski is a smartly written, well thought out comedy film in which the comedy comes from the writing. And for me personally, I find this much funnier than cheap slapstick. And really, that, that's the only real reason why this film flopped. I mean, it, it has two acclaimed directors, writers and directors, and Joel and Ethan Cohen. So it wasn't, you know, they'd just come off of Fargo. So it, was, it had a, um, a huge cast with A-listers. And it has some legendary performances like John Goodman's. And it's, it's um, you know, it's since become one of the biggest cult classics of all time. It's ranked as the 201st best film of all time on IMDb with a score of 8.1. It spawned a pseudo-religion called Dudaism <laughs> with, with more than 450,000 450, ordained priests. And personally, I think it's one of the greatest comedies of all time. Um, I actually rewatched it last night, and it it just is one of those films where it's so easy to watch it, and um, you may not get it the first time round. Like you may not fully get get the how they were trying to come across, but watch it a couple more times, give it a go, and really, it, it is such a mm. smartly written, well thought out, like Office Space. The comedy comes from the story writing, and just. Yeah. I didn't think. I don't think people were expecting to see a comedy with characters with real arcs and um, real real stories, you know. And it's just, it's. I can't get over how great this film is. It's like that's another common theme because a lot of films, just watching it once, you don't always get the whole film no. and the subtle, subtle subtleties of it. You have to watch it a few mm. times to fully understand it. And you do with the Big Lebowski, yeah. don't you? But yeah, it's it's such a smartly written film, and if you haven't watched it. Honestly, this this just John Goodman alone is amazing in this film, isn't he? Just the way he is, yeah, and, and it, he is, he'll yeah. have you on the floor, but laughing. But yeah, watch this because it is one of the smartest written comedies of all time, and one of the funniest yeah. films of all time. So yeah, good. Okay, so my next film is Blade Runner, which is Ridley Scott's nineteen eighty two sci fi film. Uh, it cost thirty million dollars to make. Um, and it made forty one point five million at the box office, which which you know is not a bad return. But mm. I guess um, coming off the back of Alien, maybe it was a little bit of a disappointment. Yeah. So the plot summary: it's set in the dystopian future Los Angeles of twenty nineteen, <laughs> where former police officer Rick Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, is caught out of retirement. Uh, when four rogue Nexus 6 replicants steal a spaceship and illegally enter Earth to find their creator, Dr. Eldon Tyrell. Now, replicants are actually synthetic humanoids um, that uh, were created, and because they they had some incidents with them being emotionally unstable, um, they were banished to off-world um, to work in sort of mines and do a lot of the sort of laborious jobs that humans didn't want to do, or they were made to be sort of better than human, 
as well. Um, the only way to spot a Nexus 6 was uh, through a test where it tests its empathy. Um, but they realised that it, it could actually develop empathy um, over time. So they built in a four-year time um, constraint. So the actual, basically the, the Nexus 6 would die after four years. Um, and to make them more stable, they started to give them uh, fake fake memories, so false memories to, to make them more controllable. So, uh, yeah, so basically Deckard is, was part of this police unit called Blade Runners that hunted down and retired these alien androids. Um, he actually falls in love with a, a replicant called Rachel um, and he then starts to obviously question his emotions um, and he lets kind of uncertainty and empathy get in the way of the duty. I'm not going to spoil it by telling you the ending. You, If you haven't seen it, go and see it. Um, reason it failed, well, again, it, it kind of got lost in the other films that, that it opened around. Like I said, it opened the same day as The Thing and the same 10-week period as Poltergeist, Mad Max 2, Tron, Star Trek 2, uh, Conan the Barbarian and E.T. And people didn't really want those kind of dystopian films. Um, they'd had, you know, in the 70s it was all about... You had disaster films, you had films like uh, Silent Green, which were kind of set in this dystopian future, Logan's Run. And I think people just, like... The reason ET did so well, people wanted something a little bit more upbeat, something a bit more positive message. Um, now, test audiences complained about the plot, so Scott caved into studio pressure and he got Harrison Ford back in to record um, a voiceover narration, which the actor hated, Scott hated, nobody wanted to do it, but the, the studio insisted. Um, the critics hated it, and they kind of boxed it in as an art film, so that's probably why I didn't receive um, a wider viewing, because, you know, an audience be looking at a review and think, oh, it's an art film, don't want to go see that, I just want to go see, you know, sci-fi, action, whatever. Um, and the studio actually recut the film uh, and had added a happy ending, which, again, Scott and Ford hated. Um... So that kind of con I think all those things kind of contributed to to it being a failure, and again, um, the popularity again was home video. I think people had to reevaluate it and realize what a great film it is. Um, it also had the added benefit of being re-released. Uh, there was a nineteen ninety two director's cut that got rid of the, the voiceover narration. It added a unicorn dream se sequence, which is crucial, and it scrapped the film's happy ending. And then there was another one released, which was the final cut, which was Ridley Scott's cut. And that was his kind of definitive film. So if you get a chance to, I would watch the final cut because that is the, probably the best version of it. Um, and again, it's, it's just a, it's just a great film. Yeah. And I just, you know, again, it's, it's probably released in the wrong, wrong time. Um, had it been released maybe, few years earlier or a few years later it might have got the recognition at the time that it deserved I, th I, I as as a person who's 
because I'm only 21, as a person who's grown up in basically the 2010s, I think Blade Runner, a film like that, would be much more suited to my time. And, um, yeah, I, I believe it was way ahead of its time. So that's that's one reason why it failed, maybe. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Right, it just happens to be that my last film was Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> and uh, Blade Runner 2049 is the 2017 American neo-noir science fiction film. It's written by Hampton Fancher and directed by Dennis Villen Villeneuve. Can never, the guy who done Prisoners, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> And it stars Ryan Gosling, Harrison Ford, and Jared Leto. Gosling plays Kay, a Nexus 9 replicant Blade Runner, who uncovers a secret that threatens to destabilise society and the course of civilization. And of course, Ford rep uh, reprising his role as Rick Deckard. And now, Blade Runner 49, uh, 2049 was made on a budget of $185 million, which is absolutely humongous. And it made $260.5 million for a total gross of $75.7 million. Now, a lot of you are probably wondering, well, $75 million is a good right? Well, not really, considering we were in the age of films frequently grossing over a billion. Plus, the studio thought this was going to be that, going to hit that billion mark. It ultimately ended up falling flat on its face. One reason the film flopped was because of the film's runtime. It clocks in at a whopping 163 minutes, which is 2 hours and 43 minutes. This is long enough to dissuade many casual viewers from a trip to the cinema. Another problem with the runtime is that the runtime, with it being so long, it limits the number of showings that cinemas can have in a day. Most big budget blockbusters clock in around two hours, and that extra 45 minutes or so means less opportunity for profit. The long runtime could also cause cinemas to drop it earlier than usual due to them not having as many opportunities throughout the day to sell tickets. Another reason the film flopped was because the source material isn't very familiar with younger viewers. While Ridley Scott's Blade Runner has, has gained a devoted cult audience since his original run, most of its name recognition rests among hardcore sci-fi fans, and that was reflected in the film's box office turnout. Males over 25 represented over 50% of the audience, and as a whole, men represented 71% of everyone who turned out. Females under 25 were just 8%. Another reason for the poor box office performance is because it stayed very faithful to its original, People weren't even expecting it to be like a modern blockbuster. Instead, it carries the same themes and ideology as the original. And I must admit, I'll add this in. Um, they made this film, they were meant to make it very faithful mm. and very true to the original. And they were meant to make it very um, uh, appealing to prior audiences of yeah. the Blade Runner films. That's why they kept the same... Um, uh, like ideologies yeah. and ideas, so it wasn't. It wasn't. It just happened to be um, aimed at them. It, it, they purposely went out and aimed aimed at them. Um, Blade Runner has Blade Runner twenty forty nine has a score of eight point oh on IMDb, and as a whole, I really do like this film. One of the main reasons is because it does stay true to the original, and you can really see this as a sequel to Ridley Scott's original. Like it doesn't take away. Ridley Scott's at all it just builds on it and I think if if you're a fan of Blade Runner I think you'll enjoy this film because like I said it, it's it's similar but it's its own ent entity as well so um, it's just mad that it, the fact of a runtime could ruin like make it flop you know but is it is it a case maybe it was too long after the original for a sequel as well yeah it could be because like you say um, it's trying to trying to stay faithful to the original, so the the only audience it really had was the people who originally were watching, yeah. watching it. 
So, you know, the younger audience would have never maybe seen the, the previous one. And being a sequel, you, ha- you kind of have to see the yeah. first. And you do, with this film, you do yeah. have to have seen the so, original, really. So, you know, maybe they lost out on that whole demographic as well. It's just a shame, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I think, they, I think they've done the right thing with with keeping to the same themes and ideology, and I think they've done the right thing with trying to target those people who've seen it before, but it's just... where like, This thing with Blade Runner and his sequel, they're just so... You can't really explain... You can explain the plot and stuff, but there's so much different stuff woven throughout, and it's... Uh, you have to be a particular fan of that type of movie to go and watch it, don't yeah, I mean, you? It's sort of some sequel like action films, like say um, *Lethal Weapon* or *Die Hard*, something like that. You don't necessarily have to have seen the first one, no, to to know what's going on in the in the second, because it's almost it references like the earlier films, but it's almost like a self-contained film as well. So with this one, obviously, like I said, it. it as it follows on from, you really have to understand what you know about. You can't really go back and re- re-explain about replicants and all that kind of thing. You you have to really see the first one. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. like I said, give this one a watch if you're a fan of Blade Runner because yeah. it really does live up to its original. So I think they they were trying to make a sequel right from when the first was. Yeah, there's loads of failed attempts, um, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Yeah. So I've actually got another film. So. <laughs> well, let's hear it then. <laughs> um, and it, this might surprise you, but it's actually a wonderful. It's a wonderful life. Yeah, that did surprise yeah. me. Yeah, um, it's the nineteen forty six Christmas family fantasy drama film produced and directed by Frank Capra. Cost three point one eight million, and it only made three point eight million at the box office. And for a film that is kind of a Christmas staple now, you, you kind of you're amazed that it didn't do so well. Um, plot summary is. Uh, James Stewart plays George Bailey. He's um, a good man who sacrifices dreams in his youth on behalf of the citizens of his small town of Bedford Falls. He inherited the loan business of his father. He didn't really want to go into it, but he felt obligated to it. So he gave up everything, travelling the world and going to university to run his father's loan business company. Um, he refuses to sell it to the evil banker, Mr Potter, and this is to protect the poor community of Bedford Falls. When his uncle Billy loses $8,000, uh, which is actually found and then stolen by Mr. Potter, George decides to commit suicide since he believes he's worth more than alive than, sorry, dead than alive. Um, so an angel called Clarence is sent to earth to prevent this. When he sees that he's not able to persuade George to give up his intention of committing suicide, he decides to show him uh, what life would be like in the town if George had never existed. Uh, a bit of a dark film actually for, yeah. <laughs> for yeah, a Christmas film um, the reason why it failed is, is um, it's 46, it's post-war so actual movie going was significantly down um, in this period um, it had one of the strongest box office openings of the year but it still failed to make a profit and recoup its budget Um but Capra and his fellow producers at Liberty Films hoped a strong run at the Academy Awards might spur audiences to revisit the picture and push it back into the black. But despite five Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, Best Director and Best Actor, and it even won one for technical achievement for the movie's Snow, It's a Wonderful Life still ended up losing $525,000 and it almost bankrupted the, the company. 
So you see that a lot where films that really failed when they opened at the box office, they'll they'll get nominated for loads of Academy Awards and suddenly they'll become a hit. Yeah. Uh just didn't happen on this one. So how did it become popular? Well, according to the nineteen oh nine Copyright Act, creative works were protected for twenty eight years at a time. That meant in in nineteen seventy four It's a Wonderful Life would need uh need to renew its protection by its original copyright holders. So whether they saw no value in the movie or simply made a clerical error, they failed to extend its copyright and it allowed It's a Wonderful Life to lapse into the public domain, which meant that distributors could uh, show it for nothing, air it for free. So that's why it's been shown every year on TV Mm. at Christmas uh, from 1974. Um, And it's kind of become a Christmas staple. It is, yeah, yeah. You know, again, it's one of those films that's been revisited, and it's it's often cited in like the top ten, you know, films of all time, or you know, the top Christmas film of all time, and it is a really good film. Um, and it's sometimes you just you just don't understand why why films like that no. just just don't just fail to to make any impact. Um, I'm just wondering what films nowadays are going to be <laughs> in future, maybe. Yeah, you know. Re-evaluated and I can't see many to be fair. Well, I don't know. It's it's you know, you know, audiences change, tastes change. So you know, some of these films might find uh, to be popular in future. Yeah, maybe. Um. So that's it. Um. I hope you enjoyed uh, this episode. I mean, I think we both enjoyed. Yeah, we enjoyed this one. Yeah, uh, this one. Uh, just remind you that you can actually get more content on uh, social media, so Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We have a website, filmgeezers.com. Uh, we have TikTok as well. Um, so that all that's left is for me to thank you for joining us, and we hope to see you next week. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye. Bye.